You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Amen. If you have your Bible, which I know you do, because this is a church that has their Bible, but if you want to turn to or open the app and go to Acts 4, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12, specifically just 11 and 12 today. If you're using one of the Bibles that's somewhere underneath you or somewhere nearby, it'll be on page 969. Now, before I read the text, I think it would be helpful to just get a little bit of background because we're going to kind of pick up a narrative that's already in full swing. We're getting a rolling start here. Um, Peter and John, the apostles, were headed to the temple. They're going to go and pray, and they pass this lame beggar. And on the way, the beggar asks for alms. They say, look, we don't have anything to give you. Silver and gold we don't have. But in the name of Jesus... They say, and this is amazing, get up and walk. And the guy jumps up, leaps up. He's been blamed from birth. He can walk, right? And as we would expect, this causes a tremendous stir. Everybody's, hey, wait, we've seen this guy. What is going on? How is this? What's going on? Amazing, a miracle. And as we could probably anticipate, the religious leaders of the day did not like this. They didn't like what was going on, so they had Peter and John arrested. And that's where our narrative will pick up. Let's go ahead and take a look at this. God's Word, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It says, The next day uh, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are bringing, excuse me, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved." Let's pray. Lord, as we seek to see Jesus as the Savior, we've seen him as the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, and this morning now we're looking at him as the perfect Savior. Open our eyes, show us, help us to understand the text, help me to preach the text correctly, help us to to really encounter and know this Savior, Jesus Christ, not be as those who reject, but see him as the cornerstone. It's in Jesus' name, amen. In our culture today, You can celebrate Christmas any way you want, so long as you don't claim that Christmas is about Jesus or that Jesus is the only way to salvation. As soon as you go down that path, as soon as you say it's all about Jesus or he's the only way, then pretty soon you'll be ostracized, potentially you'll be canceled, you'll be uninvited to the Christmas party because you're all about Jesus at Christmas. Potentially, it could be much, much worse. I think we're starting to get a sense of this, all right? And then when it happens, 
Um, and when it happens, honestly, the non-Christian world gets really uh, annoyed by Christians being surprised by this. And frankly, I'm actually with them. I get annoyed when we get surprised by this. We should not be surprised. It kills me when I see us not see what the Bible said would be happening. We should expect this kind of response to claims of exclusivity in Jesus Christ alone. Of course there would be an offense. We should not be surprised. So I I agree with them when they're shocked. But there's a flip side to this. It's where they and I probably depart. If Jesus' claims are true, and they are, then getting all offended about these claims isn't going to change the truth. Getting all wound up about it isn't going to change anything. Trying to cancel it or suppress it isn't going to fix the problem. This isn't a new issue. History repeats itself, and we have 2,000 years of history repeating itself. We're going to get all worked up. People are going to be offended at the teaching of Jesus Christ. Peter and John faced this problem in their day. And the reason the account is written right here in Acts for us, and we're looking at it just so we can think about it in our day. It's not new. So this morning, I want us to place our focus on just two of the verses that I read, specifically Acts 12, 11, and 12. Just to put them fresh in our mind, I want to read them one more time. Acts 4, 11 says, This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And if I, if I accomplish what I'm setting out to do this morning, you should see that Jesus is the one and only promised Savior, and this Jesus has come to save all those who call upon His name. By the grace of God, uh, you don't need me to convince you. Most of you already know this. Praise the Lord. So I'm praying that you might see it afresh in a new way. But if you don't know this, by the end of this sermon, I hope that God has opened your eyes. If you don't know this Jesus, that you would see him as the cornerstone and the Savior, that this wouldn't be an offense to you at this point, but this would be something for you to truly consider. And if you're at that point, you'll have some serious decisions to make. But for those of you who do already call in the name of the Lord, and he's your Savior, I hope that you see that this Savior that we have is an amazing gift to us from God. That's what I hope to show us. And at Christmas time, we're thinking about gifts, aren't we? Our mind is shifted to gifts. But let us not miss the gift that God has for us and all the hustle and bustle of gift giving and gift receiving. Let us be like little children who just who can't even contain our excitement when we see that there's a gift under the tree for us. Let us be like that as we see this amazing gift in Jesus Christ. So I'm approaching this text by way of three parts, or three sections. Now, old-timey British preachers, who I like to read, call their sections in their, their sermons heads, which I think what they mean is headings, but, but it sounds really cool. So this morning, I have three heads in my sermon, or three headings. They are the stone, the name, and the gift. The stone, the name, and the gift. And, and I have to admit, I always actually have headings in my sermons. It's nothing new. That's how I structure things. They just have the lamest names, and I don't even really ever want to share them. It says like exposition, 
applications. Boring. But this sounds awesome, so I wanted to tell you what it was, because it sounds, when you hear it all together, like a great children's book, doesn't it? The stone, the name, and the gift. That's a book I want to buy. Anyway, let's turn our attention now to The Stone. You guys are like, thank you that you don't do this every week. The exposition. <laughs> the stone. <clears throat> okay, Jesus, the stone. Blasting the religious leaders uh, in verse 11, Peter said, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That must have been a huge moment for Peter. I mean, put yourself there, imagine this. This must have been huge for Peter. All the rulers, the elders, the scribes, all of them in Jerusalem did not need Peter to tell them who Jesus was. They did not. They were well aware of the man named Jesus who was doing miracles and raising people from the dead. They were aware aware of the man who was claiming to be the Son of God. They knew who this Jesus was when only just not that long ago he came into the city and the whole city was hailing him as the son of David and they were concerned and they were frustrated. They knew who he was when these people, these leaders worked up the bogus charges that were given to Pilate. When they riled up the mob to ensure that Jesus would be crucified, that the Barabbas would be given to them and not Jesus. They knew who this Jesus was. They weren't confused. They weren't unaware who this guy was the one whom they paid off a bunch of Roman soldiers to lie about his body. These individuals knew Jesus the man. Okay, He wasn't some mystery. It wasn't confusing to them. So what Peter was doing was not telling them something about Jesus they didn't know. He was telling them chiefly something about themselves. He was pointing out their rejection of this Jesus. That is a bold statement. Jesus told Peter once and the rest of the disciples at one point when they were walking with him that they would be hauled, brought before uh, religious leaders. And he told them, don't worry what you are to say in that moment because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that very hour. That's Luke 12, 12. But I wonder how much time Peter had to think about those words. Like when did the Holy Spirit actually give him the words? Could he be thinking about the time when Jesus quoted Psalm 118.22 and, and all these religious leaders were standing around? Did he recognize that, wait a minute, the time that Jesus said that, you guys were there. And now here we are again and the Holy Spirit's giving me this word. Did he have time to process the moment? I don't know. But that's where the statement comes from that Peter shared, Psalm 118. The point of that psalm was that there was all these naysayers and all these people that didn't think anything of David. They overlooked David. They didn't think that he'd ever be the king, he'd ever be the victor. And lo and behold, the ones that overlooked this, the overlooked one, became the cornerstone. Now there's some debate in Psalm 118 what the cornerstone might be from that particular word. The bottom foundation that's like set in the corner that everything's set off of, that holds the whole building square, that makes everything right, the the important foundation stone. Or... It could also be like a capstone or a cornerstone at the top that holds two walls together. The point of the psalm is to say this rejected stone the builders didn't even want has become the most important stone. That's what Psalm 118 was trying to say. He's the king. You you overlooked him. Right? During the week that ended with Jesus being nailed to the cross and then raising from the dead 
for our salvation. During that week, Jesus confronted some religious leaders, probably some of these, if not all of these, exact same leaders. And he told them a story of a vineyard owned by a man and, he, and some vineyard workers, some farmers who worked this vineyard, who were supposed to give the owner a fair share of the crop, respect the owner, and the owner sent the messengers, and the messengers uh, would be just met like a brick wall. The, the farmers wouldn't listen to them. They'd even beat some of them. Finally, he sends his son among them to say, hey, you need to, you need to give the owner of the farm his due, and they kill the son. And so as we would expect, and rightly so, the owner of the, the vineyard comes and destroys those farmers and then gives the, the vineyard to others who will give him his due and, and will respect him. Then at the conclusion of that parable, that's the parable that Jesus shared with these religious leaders. At the conclusion of the parable, Jesus asked the religious leaders this question. He said, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the same line that Peter just said. He quoted Psalm 18. So I wonder what the, wonder what the religious leaders were thinking when Peter said it, and they're like, oh, we've, we've heard that. Huh. But Peter made a bold change. Peter did not quote that perfectly. He added something. Did you see what he added? He added the word you, and it's my guess he pointed Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, not just some mysterious builders, you. I'm sure he pointed at him, which has become the cornerstone. Remember that parable? That's Jesus. You're the ones who rejected him. It's clear as can be now. It's like Peter was saying, remember not too long ago? (laughs) Remember that? Oh boy, here we are. That's a bold moment. And he's calling them, the people that he's standing before on trial, the wicked farmers, the wicked builders. And he's saying Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, I know this was a bold moment. This wasn't passive. This wasn't wimpy. Because if we were to read verse 13, the next verse, it basically says that when the religious leaders observed that that Peter and John had been with Jesus and they knew who they were, they saw the boldness and they were amazed They recognize that they were with Jesus by this boldness, by all of this. And then it gets really crazy. After they get let go, Peter and and John, they go back to the church group. And uh, in verse 29, it says they prayed for more boldness. These guys were brave. They were bold. They stood on Jesus Christ courageously. It's no wonder they were turning the world upside down. They were bold, and then they asked for more boldness. Do you think there was some offense to hearing that Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation in the first century? Do you think that was a a problem? Do you think that they wanted to cancel John and Peter? No, they didn't want to cancel them. They wanted to kill them. Think they wanted to silence them? You bet. Do you think there was some offense? Absolutely. This is not anything new that we're dealing with. They were dealing with it. And Jesus said we'd be dealing with it until he comes back. So even more than, than David in Psalm 118, <clears throat> Jesus is overlooked and rejected. But he's actually the most important stone. He's the cornerstone. Right? And I, I think if we only had Psalm 118 to determine what that looked like, it'd be confusing, but we don't. We have Ephesians 2.20, and there we get a clear picture. Ephesians 
2, 19 through 22 says, So, this is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, So, then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. How so? He says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him... The whole building is being put together, grown into the holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling spirit. Jesus Christ is this foundational piece that sets the whole building square, that holds everything in place, that everything else is built off of. Jesus is our cornerstone, the solid foundation of God's house. And God's house is his people, us. Right? So Jesus is the rock that that house would be built on so it will not crumble when the storms come. It's not slippery sand. We sang about that. It's firm. That's Jesus. You can read about that in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. So now at this point, looking at the stone, I think it's an appropriate time to ask the question, how do you see Jesus? Do you despise him? Do you overlook him? Do you give him little weight, little credence, care little of him? Use him as the butt of your jokes? Or do you see him as the cornerstone? Are you among those who would just overlook and reject those wicked builders? Or are you among those who would surrender yourself to him and build on the foundation that he provides? Now, someone might ask, well, okay, so I don't think he's the cornerstone. We don't build on that foundation. But why can't we just find another cornerstone? Why can't we look among all the proclaimed stones to build on out there in the world? and all the other, Why can't we go and just find another cornerstone and build on that? Many people think that. Well, that brings us to my next heading. The name. With the stone, the name answers this question. So addressing the religious leaders, Peter said there is no salvation. There is, excuse me, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Verse 12. And on the surface, that probably seems like a really odd statement, actually. Because it kind of is. Like it just, in our culture, it's weird. We understand clearly the claim. The claim is that Jesus saves. It's, you know, there's salvation found in no one else. Clear as can be. It's the, it's the, it's the, for, the uh, support that has a, kind of a weird language. It seems a little fuzzy to us in our culture. It wasn't complicated for them in their culture, but we need to kind of hear it. So when we drill down a little bit, it becomes really profound. We need to understand the significance of a name in their culture. Our culture, no big deal. Brian, Bob, Steve, whatever you could call me, whatever. Right? doesn't mean anything to me, except that's how you see who I am. Right? But in their culture, Jewish culture, especially in the Old Testament, names meant so much more than they do in our culture. I mean, like they meant a ton, right? The name that a person was given captured the person's very essence, and it declared that person's purpose. Right? That's why God changed names when he changed people's lives. He made major changes. For example, God changed Abram's name from Abram, meaning the father is exalted, to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. Major change. It's Genesis 17.5. It's so interesting, and I would encourage you, study people's names when you're reading the Bible. It is really, 
Really fascinating. You will, you will see so much. They, these names are packed. They're rich. So what does Jesus' name mean? I think that's the appropriate question. When the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to tell him, look, Mary wasn't lying. She was at it's not some sort of weird thing. You should still marry her. She's telling you the truth about this baby who was conceived. And it says in 121, Matthew 121, you should name him Jesus. Why? It says because he will save his people from their sins. But it gets a little deeper than that. Jesus is the Greek way to say Joshua, or more appropriately, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Okay, and Yahweh is not the Hebrew word for God. Yahweh is the personal name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush. I am. I am is how we say it in English, but it's and we, they've kind of monkeyed it all up so they wouldn't accidentally say it, but I am. It's God's name. I am saves. So it's no wonder when Jesus tells those guards in the Garden of Gethsemane when they say, hey, we've come to look for Jesus, and he says, I am, and they back up and they fall down, it's because they've possibly heard a name they've never heard spoken out loud before, spoken from Jesus. Jesus' name, Yahweh saves, captures his essence and his purpose. That's why God told Joseph, his name shall be Jesus. Now we have to hit pause for a second, right? Because this is the place where everyone goes, now hold, hold on a second. Okay, so Jesus captures his essence. It fulfills the promises. We get it all. But then why in the world uh, does Matthew mention this whole Emmanuel prophecy where the child will be conceived by a virgin to be named Emmanuel. That just seems to blow the whole thing. I don't even get it. And I get asked this every single Christmas. I mean, it always comes out, so let's just deal with it. I've been asked it already this Christmas. Um, here's what's going on, okay? In Matthew uh, one twenty-three, Matthew's writing this account. You probably read it at Christmas time. Joseph says that a virgin, or excuse me, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 and says, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Well, they named him Jesus. I don't get that. How does that fulfill the promise? Well, it's because we need to understand what Matthew is doing. There's a couple of ways to think about what is happening here. Theologically speaking, Matthew's showing us some theology. Emmanuel means God with us, which is exactly what happened at the birth of Jesus, the earthly birth of Jesus. And in order for us to be redeemed and saved, we're going to be with God, and when we, the fall causes us to be separated from God, so even the very act of what Jesus is doing in salvation is bringing us together, and now there's a sense of God with us, us with God, and, and he's saying there's a theological point here that's being made. Now, typological, that's a really fancy word, but I'll tell you how to work that out in just a sec. Typology or typologically speaking, Emmanuel, as spoken in Isaiah 7.14, is an illustration or a picture or a type or a pattern of what the Savior would be. And thus, Jesus is the better Emmanuel. One is the type, one is the anti-type. That's how that works. Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the pattern that we see. My mom, when I was a kid, used to sew clothes. 
And she'd buy these little packets full of patterns that you would pull out, and they're all just these little thin papers, these brown thin papers. If you taped the whole pattern together, you could have a shirt. It'd just be made of thin paper. That's the pattern. But the shirt made of cloth sewn together is the better fulfillment of the pattern. That's what's happening. This Emmanuel promise is the pattern. Jesus is the fulfilled out, sewn together, perfect, complete one. I hope that helps. I hope that helps. Now, getting back to where we're at, let's get back to Acts 4. Peter's been questioned, and he answers this. There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's in response to the leaders' questions, the the religious leaders. They asked in verse 7, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now remember, names are super important. They're essence and purpose. In in whose name? What name? And he's asking about the healing. You you heal? How? What? What? So then if you go even further back to Acts 3, 6, we can read that Peter said to the lame beggar, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in the essence, in the purpose, in the power of this name, this person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And then that's how he answers the religious leaders too. It's, it, he didn't just say Jesus. In Acts 4, 10, he said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's being very clear to say it's a specific, not just all the people named Jesus, because trust me, there are plenty of people at this point with that name. But he's saying, no, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's saying a specific person. And it is only in that specific person, that name that I'm declaring, where we can find salvation. Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other. It is by that name. And notice that it says that name was given to people for salvation. Joseph didn't choose the name for the child. It was given to him, Jesus. Right? People don't just come up with, make up, create these things. We didn't create the Savior. We didn't invent the Savior. We didn't discover the Savior. He was given to us. He is a gift. That's what it means. When we receive something that has been given to us, humanity didn't make it up. It came from something completely out of this world, transcended into this world. Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the name is a gift from God, which then brings me to my final heading, the gift. The stone, we've seen that. The name, we get it now. The gift. The gift. We find... um, gift or giving language all over the Bible. I mean, it's all over the Bible. I could pick from lots of places, but I'm going to go with the same one that, that Pastor Josiah went with in the children's sermon, because we know it. And I don't want us to miss it. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He gave His Son. Peter was telling the religious leaders that Jesus is the gift of salvation from God and 
that this salvation from Jesus is the only salvation there is. There will never be another. There's not going to be another gift coming next year. There's not going to be another fulfilled prophecy out here. This isn't a pattern to be repeated. It is finished. It is final in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He is the one. Jesus is the promised Savior, the one they've been waiting for, who came to save all those who would call upon his name, and there is no other. Those religious leaders, they rejected Peter's message. They just didn't have it. They just outright rejected that Jesus was the Savior, and they opted to look for salvation somewhere else. Keep waiting, to look around, build some up themselves. John told us this would happen. It's no surprise. We shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be upset. John 1, 11, in his opening of his gospel, his good news about Jesus, he said, he came to his own. He's talking about Jesus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here's the gift. Send it back. God had the most amazing gift he could possibly give them, and they didn't even bother to unwrap it. They didn't even bother. Eh, No thanks. You keep it. How rude. They looked God in the face and just said, I don't want it. They weren't only rejecting the gift. Those religious leaders were not just rejecting the gift. They were rejecting the gift giver. God himself. They said, no, thank you. You cannot reject Jesus without rejecting God. Today, we're offered the same gift. Today, right now, at the hearing of God's word, as we're preaching it, as we're reading it, as we're reading this account, as we're hearing what God said through Peter, we're faced with the exact same reality. Receive, reject. Believe, don't believe. John 1.12 continues. As, as he's talking about those who rejected, he says this next. But to all those who did receive him, praise the Lord, he wasn't rejected by everybody. But to all those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. What a gift. What a gift. Do you guys see that? I mean, this is, we don't deserve this. We don't earn this. It is a gift of God. I know that if some famous celebrity gave you a gift, you would make sure everybody on the planet knew. Some famous sports person you love gave you a gift. It came in the mail, even a card, just simply a card. Well, I got a gift from this. I got a personally handwritten uh, card from whoever you pick. Some politicians. So you'd let everybody know. And that pales in comparison to the gift of God that you get that's been made available to you. What a gift. We've been offered the gift of the Savior. We've been offered the gift of the salvation that He brings. And not just salvation. Please recognize that. We so often say, oh, salvation's a free gift. That's true. But we've also been offered the Savior Himself. We get Jesus. When you go to heaven, you don't just get eternal life. You get Jesus. That's the reward. We get Jesus. He's the gift. And even right now, we get Jesus. He guides us. He directs us. He orders our steps. He gives us good word. He gives us comfort. He gives us encouragement and says, fear not. He empowers us. He gives us his church in which we can gather together and learn and grow and be sanctified. You get Jesus, and he gives us all these things. This is the gift we should never grow tired of. We've been given this name. 
in which salvation is found. And you can't find it anywhere else. Jesus is the wonderful gift of God. He's our Savior. Okay. If you've received him, he's your Savior. And I keep saying we, but I think there's some truth that needs to be spoken. If you've received Jesus, he's your Savior. If you've received Jesus, you've got this gift. Some of you haven't received Jesus. Some of you are on the fence and you just say, I don't know. It's sitting right in front of you. Do I wrap it? Do I not wrap it? It's not a white elephant game. You don't pass and get another one. This is it. Do do you unwrap it? Do you open it? Do Do you receive it? Or do you say no thanks and reject God? Do you believe that God raised this Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? That's what it means to receive this Jesus. Do you believe that he's taking you into the kingdom of God, even right now, and growing you, but also taking you all the way, protecting you all the way to an eternity with him where there is no more sin, no more pain, no more God. He's doing all of this. Do you believe it? Do you depend entirely on Jesus Christ for your salvation? Are you just waiting for another one, looking for another gift? Not sure. If so, then he is your wonderful savior. If you believe it, if you receive it, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to have Jesus. I don't know, it might seem a little odd at first, but as you start to walk in that, it gets more rich and wonderful, and you grow in it, and every day just becomes more and more wonderful as you're walking with this wonderful gift of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you have not received Jesus, you can today. Come talk with us. We'd love to chat with you about this. If you have no idea about the things I'm talking about, I encourage you to pick up your Bible and read. Pick it up and read it. Come talk with us. We'll give you some ideas on where you can start and make it a little bit easier. Come chat with me. Make an appointment. I'll get coffee. We'll talk about what it means to see and understand this gift, to unwrap it, to celebrate it, to have joy like a child in a gift that will never grow dull. Don't reject this wonderful gift from God. And to my dear brothers and sisters who have opened the gift, who celebrate Jesus, who love Jesus, You've done this. I just want to ask you, is this Jesus, this wonderful gift, still tickling you, causing you to have such joy, exciting you like it did when you first opened the present? When you squealed with joy, when you found this wonderful, or is the gift dulled? It's not so shiny anymore. It's been neglected on a shelf a little bit here and there. Well, why is that such a big deal? Because maybe you're looking for another gift. Maybe you've lost the joy of the gift that is Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus' fault. If you've received the gift, I want to encourage that you go back to that gift. That you find that joy. Open His Word. Spend time in prayer. Worship Him. Connect with the body. What is it that you need to do to find that joy that maybe you once had, or what is it that you need to do to enjoy the gift even more? This is the gift that will never grow dull. You can continue to press in and have Jesus more and more and more and more on this side of eternity before you're face to face with him on the next. Brothers and sisters, have you let your heart grow cold towards the gift of the Savior? It is time to reignite the flames.
It is time to come back to this gift afresh. That's my encouragement and my challenge to you. That's what I think we're constantly called back to because we so easily slip back into the rejectors, the overlookers, rejecting the stone. Maybe subtly, maybe not realizing it. That's our sin condition that causes us to do that. I want to encourage you and challenge you. Return to Christ. Enjoy Him as we will enjoy Him forever. He's our Savior. He's our Savior. And I think He's calling upon us to cherish Him, to cherish this gift. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for the salvation found in Jesus Christ. So thankful. God, I'm, I'm asking, please, that you would open our eyes afresh to you. Let us see you like maybe we once did or like we've never seen you before. That we would enjoy you immensely. That we would find our greatest joy in you. That we would continue to be uh, celebrating that we have this beautiful gift. I thank you for the boldness of Peter. I thank you that it's written down that Luke would write this down for for us in Acts. Lord, give us this same boldness that we'd see the world turned upside down so that others could enjoy this wonderful gift. Lord, some of us have family members who don't know Jesus, who don't have this gift. They're looking for salvation and, and who knows where and they won't find it. They'll come up empty. Lord, let us be bold to tell them about your son, Jesus Christ, about where salvation can be found. And as we celebrate this Christmas, Lord, let us really deeply experience Jesus in rich, wonderful ways as we never have before. God, we just love you, Lord, and we are so grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.